Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. I am so excited this morning to have my guest, Val McDermott, calling in from England. Uh, I'm, but before we get started, um, I just want to say that uh, our, certainly our hearts go out to all the people in the Gulf and uh, Houston specifically, Louisiana. Uh, our hearts go out to the people in Florida and the Carolinas in Georgia that are facing the Cat 5 Irma that's coming on, on their shores probably sometime this weekend. But uh, I just want to say, though, that if you're a private investigator, I know many of your listeners are not private investigators, but if you're a private investigator and you want to contribute to private investigators in the Texas area, there is a GoFundMe account set up. I'm going to give you the address. Uh, if you want to donate, you can donate right through there. It will go to the Texas Association of Licensed Investigators Disaster Relief Fund. So it's www.gofundme, all one word, G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E dot com slash tally, T-A-L-I hyphen disaster hyphen relief hyphen fund. That's your contact for them. That's your link for them. Um, please, if you're if you haven't already donated, or if you'd like to donate some more, uh, they really need your help down there. So, having said that, um, Val, I'm going to introduce you all. Give a loud applause for Val McDermott. Hi, Val. Hi, Francie. So, uh, just to give you folks some of the background, Val and I met. Um, just about 25 years ago in Oakland, California, when she was just a budding author. Since then, she's sold over 14 million books to date, and she's translated over 30 languages. And she, uh, if you can imagine, her writings have to do with solving crimes uh, a lot of times. So, uh, hi, Val. I'm just so excited to have you here on the show and and want to talk about what you're doing. and just how did in the world did you get started writing books? It was the one thing I ever wanted to do from being a kid. I used to spend most of my time in the local library and I just devoured everything on the shelves. And I remember one day when I was about nine or ten years old, I was reading this girl's school story in a series that I used to read a lot. And one of the characters had grown up and become a writer. And there's this paragraph where it said, she got a check from her publisher. And I was <laughs> You get paid money for this? That's great. How I thought the books came onto the shelves, maybe just people being nice or whatever, but I just thought, wow, that's what I want to do. Um, So that was was the point where the ambition was formed, and then it became a question of really what kind of books I was going to write. And I think, um, again, this is one of those um, serendipitous things. I used to spend a lot of time staying with my grandparents, and they only had two books in the house. They were not readers. They had a copy of the Bible, of course, being good Scottish Presbyterians. Um, But the other book they had was Agatha Christie's The Murder at the Vicarage. And The Bug. I just read crime fiction from then on. And so it became, I suppose, a natural place for me to end up as uh, writing it. Isn't that fascinating? And about how old were you when you had this experience? 
Well, I say when I first had the idea of, of being a writer, I was about probably about nine, ten years old, and really? I read the Agatha Christie round about the same time. And I remember being so excited when I looked inside the front cover and realised that Agatha Christie had written more than one book. Walter <laughs> <laughs> Discover. That's priceless. Well, that's kind of like me and Nancy Drew. I didn't realise there really were private investigators. <laughs> I thought people just ran around solving crimes by themselves. Did you ever get a little red roadster, though? Right. <laughs> right. So uh, so prior to this uh, book writing life that uh, that you've developed, you were a broadcaster. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was, I was, a, I was a print journalist primarily. Um, so I worked for newspapers in Glasgow and in Manchester. And I was a general reporter, which meant I covered pretty much everything from sometimes it was crime related but more often than not it wasn't and so that was really where I I, I learned my trade in some respects and what I learned really uh, in newspapers was that writing was a job it wasn't just something where you waited for the muse to descend and give you inspiration it was what you got up in the morning and sat down at your desk and did and that stood me in good stead over the years mm-hmm. oh, and so you were born in Scotland Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, whereabouts in Scotland? I was born in a small town called Kirkcaldy, uh, which is on is in a county called Fife. It's opposite Edinburgh, across the Firth of Forth. Um, but Fife has always been quite self-contained. It's, it's a peninsula that sticks out on the east coast. Um, and when I was a kid, it was quite difficult to get in or out of Fife. It was quite an adventure. Um, they built uh, two road bridges in the 1960s, which made it a lot easier but I think in, in Fife, we still had that sense of being separate somehow, being different. And it always had a tradition of, of quite radical social politics uh, in Fife. Um, and as I say, be that, that sense of difference somehow. So I grew up uh, very much with, uh, with the sense of, um, I suppose, uh, nobody could stop me doing what I wanted to do if I was determined enough to do it and worked hard enough. Um, yeah. My mum and dad brought me up with the idea that I was as good as anybody else. Cool. That's very cool. Uh, you know, and that's such a great um, example for women. And we, you know, we all still fight the gender thing. And so for you to to know as a child that you could grow up and do anything you wanted to is really so important. I think so. It, it, it always made me feel that, uh, as I say, it was up to me. Uh, my, I had the sense that, that uh, my fate was in my hands. If I worked hard enough and if I was um, committed enough to what I was doing, then I should be able to achieve it. Um, I know that's kind of, in some ways, a very unrealistic expectation of life, but it's kind of, I suppose, given me a, a certain determination. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Tenacity is a key. Totally. So, and did you actually go to school to be a journalist? How did that happen? No, I, I went to university. Uh, I went to Oxford University. And when I graduated, um, I got a job on a training scheme for journalists. Um, we don't really have so much the idea of journalism school in the UK. There's a few places now where you can go and do a master's in journalism, but it's, it's not, there's not many places where you can actually do a degree. So I, I went off and, and got a job on a, a journalism training scheme, and I spent two years on local newspapers covering magistrates' courts and local council meetings and uh, garden fates and who made the best scones. 
Um, and uh, gradually I, I, I learned things like shorthand and, and touch typing. And uh, we, did a, <laughs> we did an exam at the end of it. Then I got a job on a national newspaper because the training scheme was affiliated with a group of national newspapers. I was very lucky. Um, it was a, a pretty smooth, uh, smooth ride up to the top, if you like. Right, right place at the right time. Yeah. yeah. And, and what was your degree at Oxford in? English, English language and literature. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> that would make total sense. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really. I mean, if I'd if I'd had if I'd had more knowledge, if I'd had more understanding of what was available, I think I might have have read something different at university, studied something different. But that was what I was best at, and that was what I went for. Um, I did spend most of my final year talking to philosophers into the middle of the night with a bottle of wine, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> that's funny. So, so then, how did you transition? Were you still working as a uh, a journalist when you decided to start writing? Um, yeah, because I, I mean, you know, you don't basically just walk straight into being a writer uh, that makes a living at being a writer. It's not, uh, it's not that straightforward, I'm afraid. Um, so I was working uh, as a journalist uh, in in Manchester by that time, and I was trying to to write a crime novel, uh, and I I was I was struggling a bit because back in the early 1980s in, in the UK there were really only two kinds of crime novel. There was the police procedural novel, and there was the village mystery. Now, I, I didn't really think that I understood enough about how the police operated to write a police procedural. And the trouble with, with the English village mystery was that uh, the villages I'd grown up in, you know, Scottish mining villages, were very different from uh, the world of Miss Marple. Mm-hmm. You know, we did not have retired colonels of the Indian Army or <laughs> spinsters with herbaceous borders. So that felt very alien to me. Um, so I was a bit stuck. And the thing that really uh, unjammed me was uh, a friend of mine from Oxford who'd moved to America sent me a copy of Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only. Mm. And that just blew my socks off. I thought this was this, uh, here was a, a female protagonist who had a brain and a sense of humor and, and had agency. You know, she did her own stuff. She didn't yeah. just guise in when things got difficult. Um, and it had, it had an urban setting, which I understood. And the crimes that took place were, were kind of organic. They happened because of the setting, the kind of lives people lived, the kind of jobs they did. It wasn't just some random murder bolted onto some random village. Uh-huh. It really excited me. And there was also a sense of, of social politics in the book as well. It, it, it was critical, if you like, of the world in which this was happening. And all of that struck a chord with me. And I thought, I really want to write a book like this. And that's what sort of got me off my butt and actually doing something about it. And I wrote, because I was a full-time job, um, Monday was my day off. Um, and so I wrote my first four books on Monday afternoons. Wow. So so did you, had you covered the crime beat or done anything like that? How did you get the details of what you needed to write your book from the like the crime scene investigators and the police officers and all of those. How did that come about? Well, I didn't know very much to start with, if I'm honest. Um, I, I, I had done some crime reporting, but, but because I was I'm, most of my working years on a Sunday newspaper, it was always background stories we were doing. We were, we were seldom following the live story on the police blotter. 
Um, so it was we'd be doing the background when a big case was coming to court. Uh, so in that sense, I got to talk to a lot of the people who were, as it were, behind the scenes. I would talk to witnesses. I would talk to cops. I would talk to sometimes to forensic people. But but it was it wasn't the sort of live chase kind of story. So I suppose I got things afterwards when people kind of understood what they were looking at, which mm-hmm. I gave me more insight, really, in a way. Um, when I started, I, I made my central character. My first central character was a journalist because I thought that was much easier because I'd done quite a bit of investigative journalism and I knew what it was possible for a journalist to do. I knew the kind of avenues we could explore, the kind of relationships we could exploit and how we did it much better than I understood how a professional investigator worked. So I kind of cheated a bit, I guess. Okay, so is, was that the journalist, uh, Lindsay Gordon? Yeah. Yeah, so that was your your character there. And then the the PI in that case, in, the, in those series, was Kate Brannigan. Yeah, after, after I'd done three Lindsay Gordon novels, I, I knew it was time for a change. Um, and I, I, I was really, by that time, I'd been reading quite a lot of the American private eye writers. So Paretsky, Marsha Muller, Sue Grafton, Barbara Wings, people like that, Barbara Wilson. And I thought the private eye novel was a really interesting form. And I wasn't sure if I could make it work in a UK setting because the, the laws are different, the rules are different, and, and the customs of the country are different. For sure. The customs are definitely different. <laughs> and, and, I, and I, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I've read um, some of your books. I certainly haven't read all of them, but I've read some. Um, and I was, I was just struck with um, how complicated the, um, the whole process of investigating a crime was and how different it was compared to the United States. So that obviously because I do criminal defense and so I get involved in in crime cases all the time. There was a, a so many differences. It was fascinating. Yeah, and I, 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 when I started out with the Kate Brannigan novels, I really didn't know if it would be possible to make it work. Um, you know, I, I remember reading Raymond Chandler saying when, whenever he was stuck for something to happen in one of his books, he'd have a guy walk through the door with a gun. <laughs> Even in 1990s Manchester, which was a bit wild west, that that didn't really work. Yeah. So I had to find different ways of doing things, and it was it was it was very intriguing for me to to, to try and figure out how to make it work um, within that basic format of of the PI novel. But um, there were there were a couple of things I learned from talking to you American women private eyes, um, and the one thing that. Uh, Everybody said when I was doing the research for my nonfiction book was, your private eyes in, in novels only ever have one case. Uh, and I remember um, um, Jean Mignolet in Florida saying to me, I have 38 open cases right now. Right, right. That made me try to make the Brannigans a little bit more complicated. So there's always there's always like subplots going on. So she's got juggling different cases Um and the other thing that, that uh, I also learned talking to you guys was that you're, you're not the sort of lonely crusader out, out there on your own as a maverick. Um, you have support systems, you have relationships, you have colleagues who you, you swap information with, people that you can go to for support and help. And so I wanted to make my character, again, something that reflected that rather than have them sort of these sort of isolated, uh, friendless people, really. You know, that's really an interesting point. I, you know, and I didn't, I guess I didn't get that concept from you when we talked 25 years ago. So what, 
what was the impetus for you? Because I know you, you kind of crisscrossed the United States and talked to women investigators all over the country. What, what was the impetus for doing that? Well, uh, I was commissioned to, to write a non-fiction book about real women private eyes. Uh, and this, this happened, as so often is the case, um, as a result of possibly having one glass of wine too many. Uh, <laughs> I was a, I, I'd written, I think, at that point, one or maybe two Kate Brannigan novels. Uh, and I, I was at a publication party in London for someone else's novel. And I was chatting to uh, an, a non-fiction editor. And, uh, and she said, are there really... Uh, women private eyes out there. I mean, really, is this a job that women do? And mm. by that point, I think I'd met one woman private eye, and I said, oh, there's lots of them out there. They're everywhere. Um, and this uh, commissioning editor said, I think that would make a marvellous book. And I said, yes, it would make a marvellous book. And off I went, and the next day she rang me up and said, now, about that book you're going to do for me. Oh, how funny. So, that is great. And, and how many, do you remember how many women you actually interviewed during I that series? I think it was about 24 women, uh, m- about maybe 12 in the States and 12 in the UK, something like that. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it was particularly amazing because I suddenly found myself with a, with a book to write and, and like one contact at that point, you know, thinking, oh, what have I done? But uh, it, was, it, was really, uh, it was really good. To, to talk to so many really fascinating people doing this job and, and the range of, of work that you guys do, um, you know, from white collar crime through to adoption work, through to background checks, the whole, the whole spectrum. And of course, criminal defense work like you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fascinating. And you know what you said about um, really the, the networking the, the the networking among private invi- investigators in this country has, um, and actually worldwide, I should say, because we have contacts in England and Ireland and and all over the world, be- and that's developed. I would say over the past thirty years, it used to be you know private investigators kept things real close to the vest. They didn't share with anybody. They didn't um, they didn't share their secrets and their tools. But that's changed, mm-hmm. and. Just recently, I had a case where um, I there was an investigator in Arizona, Massachusetts, Las Vegas, um, uh, Florida, I believe it was, and Southern California that were all working on my case, pieces of it. Mm-hmm. So, and you do that through contacts because you, yeah. you just don't reach out to somebody you have no idea what kind of work they're going to do you do it through meeting people and what you're talking about uh, just you know all of a sudden somebody has an idea for a book and you know them and you say okay that's a good idea <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, I find you know work when now when I'm researching things you know it's one of those things where you start off knowing one person in the forensic community you know the first person I really made contact with is Professor Dame Sue Black who's a forensic anthropologist who's based at Dundee mm-hmm. University. She's one of the top forensic anthropologists in the world. And I mean, we've known each other now for 25 years. And because we started, I, I, she became my go-to person after I met her on a radio show. And she's introduced me over the years to lots of other specialists. You know, whenever she doesn't know the answer, she passes me on to somebody else. And because I come recommended by Sue, they right. trust me to represent their discipline properly. And so, as you say, that personal contact, one person hands you on to another like a parcel. 
Exactly right. I mean, it, it's it's really trust and credibility, and uh, I, I can't I can't imagine that you could have gotten anywhere without having uh, developed those kinds of relationships, because that is exactly that's how we do our work too. Yeah, and and you have to treat honestly with people. You know, if if someone talks to you, then you have to represent them properly in what you write. And what do you do, Val, when somebody says they they're going to tell you something, but it's confidential? Um. I file it away in terms of the detail, and then I use the basic information in the book, but transform so nobody will recognize mm. the people involved or the case involved. Okay. So, do you ever get writer's block? No. Really? <laughs> no, really. Really? So really. Tell me how you, how you accomplished getting it. I mean, because that's, that's what holds a lot of people up. So, tell me how you overcome or why you don't have that. Well, I think partly because I learned as a journalist that it's the, the job and you sit down and you do it every day. And it doesn't matter if it's not the best 1,500 words you've ever written. You can fix it later. But I think the other thing is if I'm struggling to get into today's writing or into a particular scene, I do my what I call going to the laundrette writing. So I just take my character to the supermarket or to the laundrette or to the coffee shop. And as you start just start writing anything, what they're doing. They're loading the washing machine. They're buying a latte. They're whatever. And when you start writing the character, you start to feel a sense of where you can move on within the story. And then you just throw away all the earlier stuff and get down to it. That is fascinating. We're going to take a break, Val. But I want to come back to that. That is really an interesting idea. Hang hang in with us, everybody. We'll be right sure. back with Valmer Dermot. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, 
Here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Val McDermott. She's calling here from uh, into our show from from England. Or from where are you actually? I'm actually in Edinburgh. You're in Edinburgh, so I miss speaking all over the place here. Val's okay. <laughs> dubbed the Queen of Crime in the um, in the UK area, and uh, I have to say she's she's very well known. You folks might have read her books for her Wire in the Blood series that features clinical psychologist Dr. Tony Hill and DCI Carol Jordan. That those that series was adapted for television, so you might look for that as well. Is it is it called the same thing, Wire in the Blood series on Wire TV? In the Blood, yes, yeah, it was shown uh, in, on BBC America when it first came out, but uh, you can you can get hold of it uh, on on some of the streaming services now. Great. Well, so I was just telling Val offline that I was so excited. We met 25 years ago and about, oh, maybe uh, seven to 10 years later, I happened to be in Barnes & Noble and I saw her name on a book and I was so excited. Uh, immediately bought the book and read it and found that she had become just a, a really great author. And um, and she, and as I said, she's sold over fourteen million books. But she has all kinds of books. What's a fa- what's your favorite book? What's oh, that's favorite? a really difficult question. Different books, different things to me. You mean you mean a favorite book that I've written or my yeah. favorite book? Full stop. Um, well, it's difficult because different because books mean something different to me than they do to the reader. Because when I pick up a book of mine, what I what I'm sort of flipped back to is is what was going on in my life when I wrote it. That's what I immediately remember. And um, so sometimes, you know, a book has particularly bad resonances for me because I was going through a particularly difficult time. Or another book has, you know, particularly powerful resonances for me because everything was great. Um, but I suppose in, 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 in one way, uh, there is one book that's kind of a touchstone for me, and it's a book called The Mermaid's Singing, which was the first Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novel. And that book is, is a kind of touchstone for me because... It was quite different from anything I'd ever written before, and it was a real challenge to write it. And when I started, I really didn't know whether I could do it or not, whether I could find the voice to tell this very dark and, and difficult story. Mm. Uh, and all the way through it, I was in a state of terrible self-doubt. And finally, the book was published, and it won the gold dagger for the best crime novel of the year. Uh, mm. And what I... Everybody was all excited about it for all sorts of reasons. My agent thought, oh, good, we'll sell lots of, of books abroad now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people were very excited for different reasons. But for me, the thing I was excited about was that I had managed to find a voice for this really difficult story. Uh, and I thought if I could tell that story, I would never, ever be unable to find the voice to tell a story. So I had this, I, this sense of bedrock confidence, I suppose, that, Whatever story I wanted to tell, I would find a way to tell it. So whenever I'm struggling with a book, whenever I'm struggling to to find a structure to tell a story, or whenever I'm struggling with the voice in a book, I think back to how I felt when I was writing The Mermaid Singing, and I, and I think, yeah, you, you know, you can do this. You will find the way. You will be able to do this. Just hang in there. Be patient. You'll get there. And so that, I suppose, is a, is a book that really matters to me a lot. And, and was the reason you were struggling with this so much is because this was, was the victim's voice? No, it was just the, 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 the voice of the story, really. It was, um, 
finding a way to tell this particular story because it was very different tonally um, from anything I'd written before. And, and, and it's actually a story that has two narrative voices. It has the voice of the killer uh, and the voice of the sort of third-person narrative that has a multi-point of view. Um, I know that the you know, stories now with the voice of the killer are, are ten a penny, but back in, in 1994 when I was writing The Mermaid Singing, it wasn't really something that many people were, were, were trying to do. So it did feel like um, like I was, I was breaking new ground in lots of ways, as well as just breaking ground for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no template really for what I was trying to do. So um, that really was... Uh, that was that was it was a difficult book to write, and and it's it's a very dark book as well. It's uh, you know the Kate Brannigan novels, they've got the wisecracking private eye. There's there's always a bit of light relief going on, and there really wasn't very much light relief in the mermaid singing. So how does that affect you psychologically when you're writing a book that's dark like that? Well, I I don't think it affects me particularly because at the end of the day, I know I'm making this up. I know these are not real people. This is not real suffering. And I'm always in control. Um, nobody gets dead until I say so, as it were. Right. Um, and, and I'm always also thinking uh, about the, the, the technical stuff, I suppose. Is that the right adjective? Is this the place to finish the sentence? Is this the place to finish the paragraph? Should I end the chapter here and start a new chapter? So all of those things, in a way, distance me from the darkness that I'm writing about. It's a very different experience uh, from, from reading the book, where if I've done my job properly, the book is like kind of right in front of you. It's very present. And mm-hmm. the suspense is, is, is what's, what's really um, difficult for you as a reader because you don't know what's happening next. You don't know what's going to happen next. Is something, is something awful going to happen? Is something going to happen that you had no idea was going to come at you? And I certainly feel that when I'm reading other people's books. Uh, mm-hmm. The darkness of other people's books affects me much more. I mean, I, I have on occasion woken up in the night screaming after a particularly really? dark read. Um, so, so you're not really... Um, are you living the book as you're writing it, or is that more up to the reader? I think that's what happens when you're reading a book. If you're if yeah. you're reading, you're completely drawn into it. Yeah, uh, you're sucked in. You're you're invested in the characters. You care about what happens to them, whether you you really like them and you want good things for them, or or whether you 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 despise them or hate them and you want them to get their just desserts. You know, you you care about what happens and the outcomes for these people. For me, uh, as, as as the writer, I kind of know what's going to happen in a way. I, I kind of know where we're going with this. I may not know all the details of how we're going to get there, but I know pretty much where we're going. So there isn't that same suspense at all. Um, you know, I, I do. Uh, I don't know everything that's going to happen in the book when I start out, but I have the basic shape of the story in my head. So in that sense, I know where it's going. There isn't there isn't that kind of suspense for me because hey, I know what, I know what happens at the end. You know, I, I know who dies in the end. Okay, so do you do an outline when you start? How do you start, or do you just start writing? Well, I used to start with an outline when I started out writing fiction. I felt plotting was kind of my weakest area. So I spent quite a lot of time thinking about plotting before I even started my first crime novel. I I sat down with half a dozen writers whose whose storytelling abilities I really admire. So Robert Louis Stevenson, Margaret Atwood, Ruth Rendell, Agatha Christie, um, Robertson Davis. And I literally took those books to pieces, chapter by chapter, broke down, figured out how they had been put together. And I hoped that in the process of deconstruction, I'd learn something about construction. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I started uh, working on on novels, 
I, I would uh, I would do a chapter by chapter plan um, on on neat little file cards, uh, and I'd start at the beginning and work my way through to the end. And that was a system that worked really well for me for about fourteen, fifteen books, and then it just stopped working. Uh, I got to hmm. a particular book, and I, I kind of knew the story. I knew I knew the broad sweep of the story, and but when I started to try and pin it down, it just kind of skittered away from me. You know, like when you get a wee blob of mercury. And you try and put your finger on it, and it just <laughs> skitters away and splits up and goes everywhere. And yeah. it was kind of like that with this story. And eventually, I reached the point where you know my my deadline was looming, and I had to get a move on. And I basically just took myself away uh, to a place I go to in Italy, where there was no Wi-Fi and no television and no telephone. It was completely cut off. And I just made myself sit down every day and write. And somehow, I got to the end of the book, and it was a very intense process. I I think I wrote 65,000 words in nine days. Mm, wow. Which uh, was just ridiculous. And then <laughs> I said, to- <laughs> Don't you ever worry that you're going to run out of words? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, on day 10, I couldn't get <laughs> <make> sentences. <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> and then I sent it off to my editor, and, and she called me up a couple of weeks later and said, uh, That's the best first draft you've ever handed in. And I, my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, is this how it's going to be from now on? Um, so now I start off with a much looser uh, sense of, of the story. I, I kind of know where I'm starting from, and I know what I'm aiming for, and I know what some of the key points along the way are. Um, the American writer, E.L. Doctorow, actually put this really well once. He called it driving at night writing. So you kind of know where you're starting from, and you know what your destination is but you can only see the bit of the road that's lit up in front of your headlights. Oh, yeah. So you maybe go the next four or five sections, four or five chapters, but you don't really know beyond that. So you just keep faring forward in the hope that you'll end up in broadly the place where you wanted to be. That's a great analogy. That is mm. really a great analogy. I, you know, I want to go back to this uh, where, where you were talking about that if you, when you get stuck, you uh, – you go to the grocery store, you you start experiencing in your head as you're doing things uh, what what your character is doing or thinking. And that, that's such a great little tip. So I, I, I take the character. Sorry, I, I don't think I was clear enough about that. I take oh, the character okay. to the grocery store. I get the character. Oh, you don't go there yourself, okay? No, 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 no. Okay, I was going to the grocery store. <laughs> sorry, sorry, you don't get off the hook that easily. You still have to sit there with your butt in the chair. Um, so I, I am. I, if, I, if I'm stuck about how to get get the thing moving, I take the character. I, I get the character doing something mundane, just so that I'm writing from the character's perspective. So I'm seeing the world. I'm, I'm back seeing the world through his eyes or her eyes on the page, and I have them doing something really mundane and really boring, like you know they go to the grocery store or they they do the laundry or you know whatever. But I have once I get them doing something. I'm back in their shoes again, and eventually, you know, a few hundred words, a couple of thousand words maybe it sometimes even takes, they start to behave like they're supposed to be behaving in the book, and it starts to move forward. So I can then move forward, progress with the story, and then chuck at all the, the grocery store stuff later. Mm-hmm. 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 So that's, that's, I think, you can always find something to do with your character. Uh, something, as I say, it doesn't necessarily progress the story at that point, but once you start writing once you start walking in their shoes, you start to get a destination. Huh. That's such an interesting thought for me. Okay, so um, so what other tips do you have for, 
people that, uh, it's, you know, private investigators have stories and stories and stories they could write about. So how do you, what other tips do you have? Well, I think one of the one of the things that people often ask me is, how do you know where the story starts? Mm. How do you get started with the story? And my tip for that is, imagine you're telling the story to your friend in the coffee shop or in the bar. You're sitting down. You're telling your friend, this amazing thing happened to me, or this weird thing happened to me. And the the starting point where you, where you start the story, as you would tell it to a friend, is where you would start the story in the book. So some stories start at the beginning, some stories start in the middle, some stories start at the end. But when you sit down and think about how you would tell somebody the story, how would you right. explain the story to somebody else? Where would you start it? How would you? Because sometimes you have to go, and, and, and this is this and this, oh, but I needed to tell you that. Um, right. So that's a good way of figuring out what the important things and the order things have to come in. And one of the other things I think that uh, is a really good tip for people who are getting started on writing, so they're not doing it all the time, they're, they're fitting it in with other things in their life, is think about the time of day that you're at your most productive, the time of day where your brain seems to work best. And that isn't the same for everybody. You know, I know people that get up at four o'clock in the morning to write for two hours before the kids get up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather put a bullet in my head than get <laughs> to write. You know, I don't think I've ever written a decent sentence before 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm emphatically not a morning person. So I know there are various times of the day that that my brain seems to fire on all four cylinders. I think we all have those times of the day. I think what's really helpful is to identify that for yourself and then ring fence a bit of that time for writing. So if you're somebody that, that, you know, gets a burst of energy at four o'clock in the afternoon, Find a day in the week when you can ring fence a couple of hours around that time, you know, maybe four o'clock to seven o'clock, one day a week. If you do that, you'd be amazed how quickly the pages pile up. Um, when I when I started uh, writing, as I say, I, I, wrote, I wrote on Monday afternoons because I worked for a Sunday newspaper. Monday was my day off. Um, mm-hmm. Monday afternoon between two o'clock and seven o'clock, I didn't answer the phone. I didn't answer a knock on the door I didn't make arrangements to meet people I just this is my writing time mm-hmm. and um, I think it was it was it was really a very productive way to do it because um, all week long um, I'd be thinking about what I was going to write next week I'd be planning scenes I'd be planning dialogue I'd be practicing how a transition might work between one chapter and the next how these characters were going to get themselves in the same room or whatever um, and also, I'd be thinking about what I'd done the week before and things that I needed to tweak, things that I might need to change, things I might need to, to turn around a bit. And so when I sat down at two o'clock on a Monday afternoon, I was incredibly productive because I'd been, I'd been thinking about it in odd moments here and there all the rest of the time. So th- those, those were things that, uh, that really worked for me. And I think if, if, you, if you can focus like that on a bit of time that really is, is good for you, then you would be amazed how quickly it, it works out. Mary Higgins Clark, you know, the, the romantic suspense writer, mm-hmm. she started out, she had like, I think, five young children. And she used to, in the evening, she would get, get the kids fed and get the kids off to bed. And then she'd sit down and have supper with her husband. And then he'd go through and watch the news. And she would sit down at the kitchen table and write for an hour. And that was mm-hmm. how she wrote her first books. And an hour in the evening. Uh, and, you know, as I say, it's amazing how quickly the pages pile up. So you're not suggesting people should sit down like for an hour a day or I've, I've heard that, you know, 
plan an hour a day, get up in the morning and write for an hour or something like that. You don't suggest doing that. If that's what works for you, do it. You have to find out what works for you. Um, there's no, there isn't any, there isn't a rule. You know, I mean, I, as I say, I used to write on Monday afternoons because for one thing, that was my time off. And for another thing, afternoons and early evenings seem to work quite well for me in terms of, you know, how well my brain works. Um, it's, it's about figuring it out for yourself. Because if I know one thing about writing, it's that there are no rules. Um, everybody right. has everybody has their own um, practice and process and you have to figure that out for yourself but there's no there's no point in, in, in people going along to a writing class or something and the tutor saying you must write on Sunday mornings between 7 o'clock right. and 9 yeah. don't do that unless Sunday mornings between 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock is when you want to write and when it works for you what I would say definitely is, is find a time that works for you and ring fence it and be strict with yourself about it and be straight with everybody in your life about it. Say, like, I'm really sorry, I can't go to the movies on Tuesday nights because Tuesday nights is when I write. So what do you do now, today? How do you do it today? <laughs> well, um, I, 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 I write the book um, between January and April. So January, February, March, and most of April, I will be writing the book. And when I'm writing the book, I try not to do too many outside events that take me away from home. So I don't do many public appearances and that sort of thing or conferences. And I more or less, you know, sort of get up slowly, have a Mm -hmm. few cups of coffee, get to my desk about half past 10, take a look at emails or Twitter, and then start working. Uh, And I I always start off by revising what I've done the day before. Um, I'm just going through it so where I'm up to is fresh in my head and I make changes as I need to and then I start writing and I tend to write in 20 minute chunks so that seems to be my concentration span I write for 20 minutes then I'll you know maybe uh, do some email or make a cup of coffee or go to the post office or just wander around the house aimlessly muttering under my breath and then <laughs> come back to the desk and that, more or less do that on and off um, throughout the day until till dinner and then stop and uh, cook dinner and we'll have dinner together and if it's going really well I might go back to my office about 9 o'clock and, and do another 2-3 hours and uh, that's pretty much how it goes and I am quite distracted particularly towards the end of the book and uh, mm. my, my teenage son has learned that this is the best time of year to ask for stuff. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever, just get it. <laughs> so back to what you were saying about as you're going around the week before and kind of processing in your head how you're going to change what you've already written or how you're going to develop anything. What what tool? Do you, you capture this some way? Do you carry around three-by-five cards? How do you remember that you thought about that last Thursday? Um, I tend not to make many notes about the actual book itself. Um, I, I kind of work on the principle that if it's not interesting enough for me to remember it, it's probably not interesting enough for people to read it. So I, I, I will repeat things that uh, I'll, I'll run through a particular piece of dialogue several times in my head and you know, by and large it'll, it'll sort of stick in general shape. Um, the only things I tend to make notes about are, are technical things. So if I've had to speak to a, a forensic scientist about something, uh, I will make notes of our conversation and, and particularly any technical information they've given me because I need to be sure that I've got that right. Because um, ultimately, um, everybody knows that, that crimes are not solved the way that crime writers write about it. Mm. Um, 
So anything I can do to, to root it in authenticity is important to me because the more I do that, the more my readers uh, can trust what I'm saying. So forensic detail, uh, little bits of, of stories that people tell me, investigators tell me, um, because it's not always the fact of the information you've got, it's the tone of the information, the little story, the little anecdote somebody tells you about something funny that happened in their forensic lab or the, the story that a, a cop tells you about something that happened when they were on a stakeout. Those are the things that make the information come alive. Um, and those are the things that I think are, are, are what, uh, what mark out sort of good books as opposed to just average books, is that sense of, I was there. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, I can see that that would be really valuable. And, and how about, um, have you ever been able to go to a crime scene uh, or do something like that that's, that's in real life that you could add to a book? I've had the opportunity to, to be in various forensic uh, establishments at one time or another. Um, of course, as a journalist, I was sometimes uncomfortably close to crime scenes. Um, when I was you know, covering, covering news stories, you were sometimes arrived round about the same time as the cops. So sometimes you saw a bit more than you would ideally have liked to see. Um, but uh, I've been very lucky with uh, the, the, the information and the source of information I've had that I've, I've been shown a lot of, as it were, live uh, evidence files and things like this, crime scene photographs. Um, I spent quite a bit of time hanging out with uh, with my friends in Dundee who are in, in the forensic department there. Um, and incredibly helpful, you know, with, with the new book, Insidious Intent, which I think is out in the States in December. Um, I, I wanted to have um, fires in a bodies burning in a car, in cars. Um, so I went off to Dundee to see, uh, to see my friend Neve, who's a specialist in... Uh, forensic chemistry and she does fires and, and explosives and, and drugs not all at the same time usually <laughs> right 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 yeah and she she like told me that uh you know that if you obviously when you when you when you set a fire usually there's there's um an accelerant and you can see the chemical signature of most accelerants like you know kerosene or or lighter fluid or things like that and she was saying, you know, like, if you really want to set a fire and you don't want there to be something that looks suspicious, um, a multi-pack of potato chips will go up like a torch. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, so it's things like that that, I, that you know, I, I learned from, from them. And uh, the book before that, we, we were, uh, I was talking about uh, I needed to uh, blow up a, a plane back in 1994, a small plane. Uh, and it had to be uh, a, a bomb that could be constructed by somebody basically using readily available chemicals. So we spent a happy afternoon blowing things up in the lab. All um, right. <laughs> so I get I get to do some hands-on stuff as well. Yeah, that's pretty fun. Yeah. And well, that- when I came to write about it, um, I made a crucial change in the recipe for the bomb because obviously I didn't want people actually going out and doing this for real. Right. And since, since the book was published, I have had on at least five separate occasions uh, a man, and it's always a man, a man come up to me and say, you know you made a mistake in that bomb recipe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do know I made a mistake. <laughs> that is great. That's great. Well, you know they're paying attention then. There yeah. you go. So, Val, we are at the end of our hour. It's just been delightful reconnecting with you again. Um, 
and I, I hope we stay in contact. And I started to tell you offline that I, I tried to find you a few years ago and, and couldn't. So uh, I'm just delighted that uh, we were able to, to do the show today. And uh, for, for the rest of you, if you want to read books about Val McDermott, from, uh, written by Val McDermott, uh, you have a website, don't you, Val? I do, yes. ValMcDermott.com. ValMcDermott.com. Okay. So, tune in again next week, folks, as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and people like Val who report on them. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 